Well, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The wind is one of the most mysterious yet powerful forces in nature. Gale force winds can howl and twist, or the wind can blow like a soft and gentle breeze. And we use the wind. Hey, we need the wind. When you jump out of the shower, it may have happened to you this morning, and you're in a hurry, and you don't have time to let your hair dry on its own. You use the wind to blow it dry. When you dust off the driveway, you crank up the old leaf blower. It draws a robust gust of wind that blasts away the debris. Well, at times, the Holy Spirit is like this boisterous wind. He sweeps in to clean us up and blow us off. God's Spirit moves in gusts and flurries and sometimes serious squalls. At other times, the Holy Spirit is like a calm and gentle breeze. He moves among us in refreshing ways. Either way, just as we need the wind, we need the Holy Spirit. Like a kite on a balmy day or a parasail on a glassy sea, the Christian who doesn't catch a gust of the Holy Spirit remains grounded. We never set sail. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. The event that occurs here in John chapter 20, it takes place shortly after Jesus' resurrection, that very evening. The living Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. One of the idioms used throughout the Bible of the Holy Spirit is breath or wind. The word spirit in both the Greek language, pneuma, And in the Hebrew language, ruach, gets translated by this same word, wind. I like how one paraphrase of John 20, verse 22, renders this verse. It says, Jesus took a deep breath and breathed into them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. Notice that. Jesus took a deep breath. Jesus drew from deep within himself and gave to his disciples something of himself. What an incredible gift to give. Before Jesus was crucified, he spoke with his disciples about the work and ministry of the coming Holy Spirit. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus told his followers that the Holy Spirit was already with them, that the Spirit of God had convicted them of their sin and had drawn them to the Savior. Now here in John 20, They believe in the risen Christ, thus meeting the requirements of salvation. And as a result, Jesus breathes on them, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. Though Jesus was about to ascend to heaven and leave them physically, 
He would forever be linked to his disciples spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Oh, but Jesus wasn't done. For a few weeks later at the Feast of Pentecost, Jesus got out the old leaf blower and he breathed on his disciples again with a mighty gust. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that flickers of fire appeared over the heads of the disciples and the people in the room heard the audible sound of a rushing mighty wind. The Amplified Version calls it a violent tempest blast. This is not a mild breeze that leaves the believers in their world unaltered. No, this is a bold wind, a hurricane that blows them up, that picks up the pieces of their lives and then totally rearranges the way that they live. Realize this is what readied the apostles to embark on their mission, the mission that Jesus gave them to go and make disciples of all nations. It was the influence of the Holy Spirit. This was the indispensable ingredient to carry out that task. It wasn't education. Although they had spent three years learning at the feet of the master teacher, Jesus, it wasn't their experience. Although they had witnessed Jesus' miracles, hey, they had even worked a few themselves. And it certainly wasn't commitment. Although they were deeply dedicated to God's will, they had left all to follow Jesus. Realize these disciples, they were educated, they were experienced, and they were certainly committed, but that didn't make them ready for their mission. They still needed the Holy Spirit. Before people would believe their witness, they had to first receive God's Spirit. And it's as true for the 21st century church as it was for the first. No amount of education or experience or commitment will ever take the place of the Holy Spirit. The church today desperately needs the Holy Spirit. Notice again in John 20, Jesus breathes gently on his men, his spirit. In contrast, in Acts chapter 2, it's a windstorm. He breathes the same spirit on the same people, but in a different way, this time with a gale force intensity. See, sometimes the spirit comes gently. At other times, he blows across our house like a hurricane. But God's word to us is always the same. Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus continually breathes fresh breath into his church. Receive the Spirit isn't a one-time command. It's an attitude we should cultivate. It is the permanent posture that you and I need to maintain toward the Holy Spirit. Our approach to him should always be one of receiving. 2 Samuel chapter 5 provides a wonderful analogy that depicts the Holy Spirit as the wind and illustrates why we need him so. When the Philistine army heard that David had replaced Saul as king of Israel, they tried to take advantage of this transition, this change of administration. Perhaps they could catch Israel off guard, use the element of surprise. And so they deployed their troops into the valley of Rephaim. When David heard about it, he prayed and he inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? God told him, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And true to God's word, that is exactly what happened. David thoroughly trounced the Philistines. But these Philistines, they were slow learners. 
These guys were some knuckleheads for sure. Once they had recovered, they tried the very same tactic. Again, they deployed troops to the Valley of Rephaim. Now understand, this is the same enemy. This is the same theater of conflict, the same strategy, the same circumstances, the same time frame. If you had been David, what would you have done? Well, to me, this looks like a no-brainer. I've already prayed about these circumstances once. Why would God's answer be any different this time than last? I would have assumed that God would give me the very same marching orders, but I would have assumed wrong. Thankfully, David didn't assume. Again, he inquired of the Lord, and God replied with a different set of instructions. He said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, in other words, when the wind starts shuffling the leaves, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Well, David obeyed and again drove back the Philistines. But you see, this story illustrates our tendency. For we as humans, we look for patterns to mimic, formulas to follow. Hey, give me that copy of the blueprints. We look for a template to lay over any given situation so we'll know exactly the steps that we need to take to solve the problem. Just trace the lines and the outcome is guaranteed. And we even do this as Christians. Oh, we like to follow the six steps to victory or the three keys to being an effective witness. Even pastors do this. They read somebody's manual on the musts of church growth or they travel to a church that's growing and study its behavior, assuming that they can learn the secret formula. There's only one problem. There is no secret formula. David was given two different strategies for the same circumstances. Rather than lead through a formula, God told David to wait on the wind, on the Holy Spirit. The Lord instructed David to circle around behind the enemy and wait for the sound of the marching in the treetops, or literally the wind rustling the tops of the mulberries. The answer, my friend, was blowing in the wind. And if you want to walk in spiritual victory and be a winsome witness for Jesus and win battles for God, don't look for a program or a plan or a pattern. Follow a person. Here's the secret formula. We need the Holy Spirit. God doesn't come in an elixir that you put to your lips and tip back. God isn't doled out in a pill. God can't be condensed to a can or consumed in a tablet. God definitely doesn't fit in a box. God is spirit, and following the spirit is like listening to the wind. In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus said to Rabbi Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus is saying that the movements and ways and workings of the Holy Spirit are as unpredictable, as unexpected as changes in the wind currents. 
Watch the flags over Wrigley Field on a windy day. The wind blows out one moment, it blows in the next, it blows right, it blows left. You're never sure which way the wind blows. And the same is true of God's Spirit. He has a mind of His own. God's Spirit has His own agenda. The Holy Spirit calls the shots, not you, not me. The Spirit of God does what He wants, when He wants, and how He wants. Our job is to follow. See, if God did author formulas and programs, it would still put us in control. It would be up to us to plug in the prompts, and then God would be forced to follow suit. But that's not the relationship that God wants with us. You can't control the wind. It charts its own course. And if we're depending on God's Spirit, it's up to us to bend and to adapt and to adjust to Him, never vice versa. A veteran army paratrooper was addressing a group of new recruits one day. This particular soldier had just completed his 2,000th military jump. Well, after his talk, one of the new recruits asked the old pro how he had gotten started parachuting. The veteran soldier replied, Well, I was an infantryman 15,000 feet in the air. We were scheduled to land, but the plane's engine blew out. I started jumping because I had no other choice. And this is why I need the Holy Spirit. I have no other choice. You have no other choice. If you and I want to connect to heaven while on earth, if we want to walk with God and receive power from God and live in the will of God and enjoy the blessings of God and be pleasing to God, it will only occur through the involvement of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. When Zerubbabel returned from Jerusalem with his skeleton crew of Jews to rebuild the temple, God told the governor how the job should get done, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. A completed temple would not be the result of man's muscle or of human ingenuity. Zerubbabel's greatest effort, his highest wisdom, would not be enough. What was needed was a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, today God is building two temples. He's building you up as a temple as a fit habitation for himself, a temple of the Holy Spirit. But God is also building us up corporately. He wants a temple in our town that will bring him glory. This is why church work also requires the Holy Spirit. Whether we're talking about what God wants to do in us personally or with us corporately, again, the key is the Holy Spirit. Yes, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Nothing of eternal value gets done apart from the Holy Spirit. Author Jack Taylor, he has an analogy that dramatizes the helplessness of churches today that depend on their own ingenuity and efforts rather than on the power of the Holy Spirit. He writes this, To a large extent, we go around beating on trees with bare axe handles. At intervals, under the suspicion that this is not getting the job done, we call for strategy conferences on how to make our axe handles more effective or improve our swing. We take a census of the trees. We motivate the wood choppers. We declare that this is the day for felling trees. And with polished axe handles and persuasive personnel, we embark towards the woods. But alas, though the noise of the workmen is great, the sound of falling trees is missing. 
Taylor concludes, This is movement without might, energy without effectiveness, much doing but little dynamic. There is little to show after all is done but bruised hands and tired bodies and wounded trees. What is missing? The axe head, of course, the cutting edge of it all. And what is the axe head of the church? It is the life of God in Christ released through the work of the Holy Spirit. The church with all its abilities and all its programs are but handles on which swings the axe head of God's life. It is the axe head that has to be recovered. Acts chapter 19 verses 1 and 2 tells the tragic story of a church trying to serve God without God. Can you imagine that? A church trying to serve God without God. When Paul first came to Ephesus, he discovered that the believers there were ignorant of the Holy Spirit. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Talk about a desperate situation. Imagine believers in Jesus who had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Here a church was paralyzed because of their spiritual ignorance. They just didn't know. These disciples at Ephesus, they loved Jesus. They wanted to obey God. They wanted to spread the gospel. They had a great commission, yet they were plagued with a great omission. Here was a handful of believers attempting to convert and disciple a pagan city with no knowledge of the person or power of the Holy Spirit. What a strange situation. And yet, isn't this the plight of many churches today? Oh, there's lots of effort, but little power. Hey, if you're like me, you don't want to be a powerless Christian. You don't want to be a part of a powerless church. This is why we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Let me elaborate a moment or two about a danger in the Christian life that I believe applies to us, even Calvary chapels, to sincere believers. You see, we can study the Bible, and we can be accurate in our doctrine, and we can memorize verses and sniff out heresies. We can glory in the cross and share our faith and tithe our money. We can keep our noses clean and our hands pure. We can live good, moral, spiritually innocuous lives. Hey, we can do all the right stuff, yet miss out on the very crux of Christianity. For the Christian faith is not just a creed to believe or rules to keep. It is a person to experience. Christianity is experiential. To know God in the fullness of his power is the Christian's birthright. This is the privilege of God's grace. This is the gift that Jesus paid for on the cross. And this should be the joy of our soul. Psalm 34, verse 8, baits us, even dares us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Did you know you can savor the Savior? That you can experience God through his Holy Spirit? See, Christianity is rational, certainly, but it's also relational. It's scriptural, but it's also spiritual. It's historical, but it's also mystical. Hey, we all need to be reminded that the Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We need His Spirit to permeate and propel us in all that we do. The truth is, 
We need both the power of God's spirit and the truth of God's word, both knowledge and might. You've probably heard it said, a church that has the word without the spirit will dry up. A church that has the spirit without the word will blow up, but a church that has the spirit working through the word will grow up. God's word is like the fireplace. It provides a frame and a grate that keeps the fire from burning down the house. But a fireplace is worthless without the fire. Let me add one more line to that saying that you've all heard before. And a church that has the word but only pretends to have the spirit causes God to throw up. Don't be lukewarm. You know what Jesus said he would do to the lukewarm Christian? He would spew him out of his mouth. You and I need to be on fire with the Holy Spirit. Once there was a busy downtown lawyer who was sitting at a red light in his fancy new sports car. When up beside him came a young boy on a scooter, a motorized scooter. Well, this boy wanted to talk to the lawyer, and so the man rolled down his window. The boy said, hey, mister, nice car. What kind is it? The uppity lawyer snapped back, it's a Porsche. How much does it cost? Plenty. Is it fast? Well, just about that time, the light turned green. The attorney dropped the car into gear. He left the boy in the dust. But as the Porsche accelerated, the lawyer noticed the boy on the scooter was gaining on him. Zoom, the scooter went right past him. The lawyer couldn't believe his eyes. He hit the accelerator and passed the boy again. Yet again, the scooter sailed by him going twice as fast. The lawyer was stunned. Finally, he gunned it. There's no way he's going to get outrun by a scooter. But as he looked in his rearview mirror, he saw this boy accelerating faster and faster and faster. He wondered what in the world could be powering that scooter. Well, as the boy on the scooter shot around him, the lawyer was so shocked, he lost control of his car. He steered into the boy. He ran the scooter off the road. Well, the attorney immediately jumped out. He apologized. He said, I'm so sorry, son. He said, I didn't mean to hurt you. I just didn't think a scooter was able to go that fast. Is there anything I can do to help? The kid on the scooter, he looks up and he says to the lawyer, well, yes, you can unhook my backpack from your rearview mirror. And here's the moral of the story. We're all just scooters. We have very little power, but we can hook our backpack on the Holy Spirit and we can tap into a tremendous and awesome strength. In the upper room on the night before he was crucified, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away. And the news must have devastated the boys. Imagine this. Imagine the bottom of the ninth, the score tied, the bases loaded, and your number one hitter is scheduled at bat. But instead of striding up to the plate, you look down the bench, and there's old Freddie Freeman. He's checking his watch. He's got to go. Wait a minute, Freddie. You can't be serious. This is when your team needs you the most. And what if he turned to his teammates and said, Oh, guys, don't worry. Though the game isn't over and though you're facing a crucial situation, it's to your advantage that I go away. I mean, if Freddie said that, you'd think the old boy had flipped his lid, that he had done one too many tomahawk chops. 
Yet that is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples. The three and a half years he had spent with them had climaxed at Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover. This was crunch time. Jesus now has the attention of the Jewish establishment. The crowds had hailed him as their Messiah. Everyone was looking to see what Jesus would do next. And it's at this point that he tells his disciples that he's returning to the Father. He even has nerve enough to tell them that they'll be better off without him. This is what he says in John 16, verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Here is a truly incredible thought. The Holy Spirit is an advantage over the physical presence of Jesus. That sounds almost blasphemous, but it's true. Jesus said it. See, Jesus could only be at one place at one time while he was on earth in a physical body. But the Holy Spirit can be in all places at any given time. Jesus taught and modeled a better way to live. The Holy Spirit, though, puts that better way to live in our hearts. He embeds it in us. Such a difference. Jesus showed us how, but the Holy Spirit empowers us to do and be and live that way. It was an advantage for Jesus to leave and send the Holy Spirit in his place. As we said last week, God's Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And just as the disciples depended on Jesus, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Hey, you and I, will always be like that little boy who brought five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Guys, that's all we'll ever bring. You and I are incapable of miracles. Our utmost is utterly insufficient. Yet here's the good news. The Holy Spirit takes up where Jesus leaves off. The Lord can take our little and transform it into much. Our meagerness sets up God for miracles. This is why. We need the Holy Spirit. If you desire to live in the light of God and know the truth of God and possess the life of God and feel the love of God and sense the presence of God and reflect the image of God and live in the will of God and behold the glory of God and be fueled by the power of God and receive spiritual gifts from God and be fruitful and effective for God, then you need to depend on your relationship with the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that we are required and responsible. We have certain obligations in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. For starters, it begins when we're born of the Spirit. But then we're also told to walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit, to never grieve or quench the Spirit. And I could spend a lot of time this morning trying to define in detail these various commands. Yet, lest I make our responsibilities to the Spirit more complicated than they need be, just remember the Spirit is like the wind. We don't see the wind. We don't understand the wind. And we certainly don't control the wind. But when God sends the wind, we enjoy it. The wind is a mystery, but that doesn't stop me from utilizing it when it blows. 
To me, the key to benefiting from the wind is not my understanding of it or my unraveling of its mystery. It's in my willingness to lift up my sails in its direction. When Jesus imparted the Holy Spirit, he breathed on his disciples. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, figure me out. Or decipher this. Or you guys, you need to understand that. No, he simply said, receive the Holy Spirit. The key to our relationship with the Holy Spirit is not our ability to decipher his ways, but our willingness to humble ourselves and be open and to receive him in. Are you receptive to the Holy Spirit? In the original movie, Ben-Hur, the most famous scene was the chariot race. I mean, even in light of today's special effects, that chariot race was a masterpiece. But in the filming of the race, there was a problem. Charlton Heston had learned to drive a chariot. And it wasn't something that he did very well. In fact, at one point, he confided in his director, William Wyler, that he could barely stay on the platform, let alone win the race. Wyler told his star, Charlton, your job is to stay on the chariot. My job is to make sure you win. And both men did their jobs. But that director's words sum up our relationship with the Spirit. To be born of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. What it requires is that we stay in the chariot. Our job is to believe. It's to hang on. It's to be receptive. It's to bend and adapt and adjust and repent. It's to do whatever the director tells us to do. You stay in the chariot, and the Holy Spirit will see to it that you'll win over sin and that you'll be productive for God's kingdom. He will work the miracles. Once, after a Sunday morning service, right here in this altar, I had a lady walk up to me, and she said simply, I am here today because I want to receive the Holy Spirit. We prayed together right then, right there. The Lord breathed on her, and she received. And this morning... I want to give you that same opportunity. 